Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Let's talk spying. Who are the spies and how do they go about finding out what governments and corporations want hidden? How is espionage done anyway? Where does cybercrime and malware and the like fit into the spying spectrum? Do spies really still use invisible ink? And are there still highly trained operatives on the ground? You're James Bonds and Marta Haris doing real cloak and dagger stuff. Hidden microphones in the flower vase, cameras in the lapel pin, you know the drill. And how does Australia fit into the free world intelligence community? And surely everybody knows everything about everybody, don't they? Just who does know what about whom and who and how? Joining us tonight, uh, three people with great knowledge of such matters. Here in Australia and Melbourne, we have cybercrime experts Susan McLean. Susan is Australia's foremost expert in the era in the area of cyber safety. As principal of cyber safety solutions, she was also a member of the Victoria Police for 27 years and known as the Cybercop. Susan, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, in London, joining us, uh, we have Richard Kerbage. Now, Richard is a uh, an award-winning uh, investigative journalist and filmmaker is the author of The Secret History of the Five Eyes. This is the intelligence community, of course, of which Australia is a part. The untold story of the shadowy international spy network through its targets and traitors and spies. It's described as the definitive account uh, but of uh, authoritative but unauthorised stories of the Western world's most powerful and least known intelligent alliance made up, of course, of the US, Britain, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. Richard, welcome to you and welcome to Nightlife. Thank you for having me on the program. And uh, also joining us from Washington, D.C. I told you we're going around the world here, where it's a very early hour, but Chris Costa's got up for us. He's Executive Director of the International Spy Museum. Now that's a job, isn't it? Wow. Uh, We won't disclose its location just yet, but Chris, I'm sure, will reveal the secret later. Chris was previously Special Assistant to the US President and the Senior Director for Counterterrorism at their National Security Council. He also spent 34 years in the US Army Intelligence Service. Chris, uh, hello. I know it's just after 6am. Thanks for getting up to join us. Oh, no problem at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have all three of you on and uh, welcome uh, to the program. Chris, can we start with you as you've been involved longest in the world of covert information and intelligence? Indeed, from the pre-Cold War era to the post-9-11 world, you've had decades of experience navigating the intelligence community. How has spying changed since you began with U.S. military intelligence? So great kickoff question. Social media is really the biggest change, right? When I started out, there was no such thing. Uh, It's a double-edged sword. An intelligence officer can anonymously troll for sources online and learn a lot about people, as you alluded to in your lead-up to this talk right? Uh, but at the same time, it's double-edged because an intelligence officer has an increasingly difficult time concealing who they are. Because of biometrics and social media, it's like fingerprints, digital mm. dust. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so the kind of techniques which once you could rely on anonymity, you can't really anymore. Is that what you're saying? Well, there are techniques and tradecraft has adapted, and that's a key point I want to make. Human intelligence is universal. So the work that I did, the bulk of my career, spotting, developing, building personal relationships 
and then recruiting somebody because they have access to secrets or terrorists. That is universal. It still happens. That basic tradecraft plays out. There's just another dynamic, and that is social media provides opportunities and challenges. Mm. Uh, but classic spying continues. It's just that um, complexities have increased significantly, and it's harder, in my view, to be an intelligence officer today. Yeah. At the end of the day, what you're saying is that uh, at the heart of it is someone – I remember when I started as a journalist years and years and years ago, uh, and and we were talking about news, and someone told me what news was, and they said news is simply what someone else doesn't want you to know. That's, that's all it is. Uh, in the intelligence world, I guess that's the case as well. You're, you're saying that in the end, convincing someone to tell you something that you don't know but they do is at the heart of it. Yeah, and it might seem incongruous, but the bottom line is it's about building a personal relationship, a trusting relationship between the case officer, the spy handler, and the spy, that foreign agent if you will. Uh, you have to build a personal trusting relationship at the same time. Uh, there's some manipulation there. There's some back and forth, some give and take. It is it is uh, a challenging but also rewarding profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're getting others to take significant risks to pass those secrets to you. Mm-hmm. At the start of the Ukraine-Russian war, it's now been revealed the US released intelligence data and understandings that were secret to them publicly to thwart Russian disinformation, and they're still doing it. How are you seeing the approach to the use of, of essentially classified intelligence in, in the conflict at the moment? Well, the information starts off classified, but it goes through a significant declassification process. So what am I talking about? Well, at the end of the day, the root issue is you have to protect the sources and the methods. They have to be protected. Mm -hmm. But I believe the approach that you just referenced is inspired. I think it's groundbreaking in that we, the West, is able to use techniques to get ahead of Russian uh, decision making. To, to thwart their ability to employ disinformation. In other words, we counter, we flag, we call out that disinformation before the Russians start using that information uh, as, as uh, you know, uh, a preemptive act on the battlefield. We're able to say, hey, the Russians are getting ready to say that the West has used chemicals on the battlefield. That's just not true. Wait and see. Mm-hmm. And then the Russians don't employ it. So I think it's inspired, it's thoughtful, and I think it is game-changing. Many of the rules uh, have changed, in effect, as a result of post-9-11 and post-Cold War. Mm. How much do you think the U.S. would know about what's going on inside the Russian decision-making apparatus at the moment? Yeah, I think the United States, because of technical collection and because of human intelligence, knows a lot. I mean, frankly, the Five Eyes partners um, that you referenced Mm. uh, from Richard's book, the bottom line is everyone's sharing information to some extent. Uh, Those who are aligned against Russia, um, 
the United States has their own human intelligence. And let's face it, um, the United States is able to advertise openly, open, openly, both the FBI and CIA and said, and say, listen, if you're dissatisfied with Russia, and there are a lot of people that are dissatisfied in Russia with Russia, come talk to us. So there is motivation for people to reach out and there's ways to do that. You can find it online. You can find it in social media. And the United States has uh, some excellent leverage to recruit individuals to provide intelligence. So I am highly confident that coupled with our technical capabilities, coupled with our partnerships, our special relationships, in particular with the Five Eyes, that the United States has great insights. What's difficult and most challenging, and I can't speak to with authority or direct knowledge, is having the insights of what's in Putin's brain, right? Understanding and divining his intentions. Mm. Analysts across the globe are trying to figure that out, but that's based on painstaking analytical judgments hmm. but uh, <clears throat> yeah yeah but in terms of uh, and this seemed clear from the beginning in terms of you know troop movements or what is going on on the battlefield there doesn't seem m- much that the the u.s would not know would you think i couldn't agree with you more and uh, i'm seeing some of the analytical uh, products that are being posted online by the British intelligence establishment and the insights that are gained just from open source intelligence are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So technology has changed. This is not, I repeat, in my view, this is not classic spy versus spy that played out during the Cold War, yet some of those principles still apply. Mm. But the amount of information that's available in terms of battlefield information is quite extraordinary. We'll go back to the Spy Museum um, uh, a bit later in the in the discussion, but just back on hardware, what are we to make of this spy balloon, what I described as a fiasco <laughs> in the opening part of the program, well, because it just seemed to me frankly ludicrous <laughs> that, well, that, that, well, that tr- any foreign government was seriously sending an airborne balloon hoping to collect information uh, about another country. I mean, it's frankly ridiculous, isn't it? Or is it not? So I chuckled a bit when you when you use the word fiasco, because, frankly, I was getting a little tired of the story. Our historian at the International Spy Museum spoke about it repeatedly mm-hmm. uh, while I was uh, off the net, so to speak. And, and that was good uh, because the story, uh, although it's an important story because it underscores the idea of redundancy and collection, it was a little overdone because I am far more concerned about some of the things we're talking about today, like what? Election interference. I'm worried about stealing commercial secrets, which, uh, you know, the the Chinese government's taken to a, a different level. I'm worried about spying on the diasporas across the world. I'm worried about assassinations, cyber tools like solar winds we could talk about later. So I'm worried about human intelligence. Um, I have other counterintelligence priorities in my mind, Mm. but the balloon's an important story because it underscores that there is this space, no pun intended, you know, somewhere beyond 60,000 feet to, I don't know, um, 
you know, 600,000 feet. I don't remember, mm. but there's a space that is called in quotes near space, which balloons can operate. They can lo- loiter more over a target. So you have space borne systems. You have agents on the ground. You have sources on the ground, but you now have the ability to loiter and put balloons up over targets to stay longer. Now, I think this was an Iran balloon. I think it was a mistake that was beholden to the winds. But at the end of the day, the idea of having balloons up isn't as ludicrous as it seems okay. uh, because it's just another collection platform, if you will. Mm. Okay. You wrote a recent interesting, fascinating article called uh the new era of counterintelligence has got a shift focus to the to the grey zone. This is what you were just talking about um, a, a second ago. Uh, that this is where the real battles are, are taking place. Tell me about the grey zone. Yes. Yeah, so my my main argument is there are grey zone activities, a battle for influence that's playing out across the world. Chinese influence. It's a world of competition. Russia malign influence. Iranians in their malign influence, the Iranian government, assassinating or attempting to assassinate, um, you know, dissidents. These kinds of acts are playing out from Africa, of course, to to Asia, the Indo-Pacific region, you know, with China, this competition, disinformation operations alongside traditional espionage activities, proxies, all of this is playing out. So I I've made the point that the U.S. FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, has done a great job, from my optic, mm-hmm. at uh, busting up spy rings like Australia has done as well. I've heard from your Secretary General of Security talk about that. I, I believe that Australia has done an excellent job, excellent partners. But it's in the gray zone space overseas that I'm concerned about. And I think the U.S. can ramp up its efforts. The Brits are apparently doing it. We should learn lessons from post 9-11 on how we galvanized our resources uh, to counterterrorism. We should be doing the same thing with regard to Chinese intelligence officers, Russian intelligence officers, and Iranian proxies and intelligence officers in special operations can help fill some of those gaps. So that's my main argument. Mm. And I think it has some resonance with the people that I talk to. Mm. All right. We're talking uh, spies and cybercrime and uh, espionage with uh, experts tonight. Chris Costas, Executive Director of the International Spy Museum. And has previously been Special Assistant to the US President and the Senior Director for Counterterrorism at their National Security Council, joining us this evening. Let's bring in Susan McLean here too, who's Principal of Cyber Safety Solutions and a member was a member of the Victoria Police for 27 years. Susan, you've done a, a, a lot with what I always think is a contradiction in terms, the, the area of cyber security. Is it a contradiction in terms? Well, it is and it isn't. And I think we need to understand that when we're using technology, whatever it is, whoever we are, mm. we need to be mindful of the security of our data, the safety of us as users. Um, it all sort of has to come together. But, yeah, you can say, well, really, am I really secure when I'm using technology? And and the bottom line is probably not. I remember years ago there was a, reports that uh, the principal of a, of a big um, American corporation in Australia was so mistrustful of of uh, of traditional methods. This is way pre-internet. 
that if he wanted to communicate with head office on anything important, he would uh, he would write out the information that he wanted answered or his queries on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, and he would give it to a trusted employee who would then catch an aeroplane to America and deliver the <laughs> deliver the, the letter personally because he didn't trust anything else. Well, I mean, aren't, aren't we at that, we're at that stage plus a thousand now, aren't we, with with cyber channels? Because anything, anytime you press a key a key on a keyboard, somebody's potentially got access to it, haven't they? Correct, and I think that you know the the best way to get that uh, securely over to the states would be on an aeroplane because you can't trust Australia Post to deliver anything. No. Just a side <laughs> issue there, um, but that's correct. Every time you press a button. Um, and you've sent something out into cyberspace, mm. it's gone. Now, you've got an intention of where it's going. You've got the intention of who sees it, who can see it, who can't see it. But, you know, people say to me, oh, I'm using this, can I be hacked? And the answer is, of course you can. Of course you, you know, can. E- yeah. Everything is hackable. It's like, but is it worthwhile? You know, is Harry the hacker or um, a foreign entity likely to be interested in what you're doing or are they not? But it's always possible. Mm. Yeah, I remember, and Chris, you, you would have been seeing these institutions years and years ago. I remember being in the Australian embassy in uh, in uh, in Russia, uh, in 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 well, near the Kremlin, it was actually. And I was shown the room where that, where communications were held, the secret room, and it was a box, you know, another room that was up on springs. <laughs> it was isolated oh. in itself uh, from from the surrounding space. And uh, you had to approach it. You had to, you know, there were many locked doors to get to it. But the room itself was actually, as I say, a box that was suspended in space uh, oh. as a means of, of trying to protect yourself. Are these efforts, in a sense, futile, Susan? Um. Well, I, I'm not the, the tech expert sort of person, but I really can't see how suspending something in the middle of any room is mm. going to stop um, the the content getting to it or getting out of it because it, it doesn't come through the box per se. It comes through whatever technology is being used. Mm. Yeah. What do you think, <laughs> Chris? Is, uh, is, is, any, is anything in, in cyberspace secure or should we should give up on the idea of cybersecurity? Well, I think if it's not connected, it's isolated, which uh, which is what you, you described. It is possible for the short term to have a secure conversation. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, what happens when you leave the embassy? What happens when you leave that safe space that's had all the checks? Because you have the ability to go in. We, we show some of these technologies at the Spy Museum from the 1970s to the present day. We have technical surveillance countermeasure inspections to go in and ensure that there are no bugs, if you will. Uh, but at the end of the day, then you leave the embassy and what do you do? You might continue that conversation, uh, which you're not supposed to do, or somebody could develop you, build a relationship and recruit you. So that's the nightmare. So despite all of these technologies at the same time, you have to worry about fundamental uh, security awareness. Mm. Does that mean, though, Susan, what you're saying is that nothing that nothing that's exchanged uh, through any government department, whether it you know, be classified at the top of the page, top secret for, you know, so-and-so's eyes only, that all of this doesn't really mean anything. And can I ask you a subsidiary question? In a sense, though, there is so much stuff going on out there. Is it possible to actually look at it all? 
Oh, I don't think it's possible to look at every single uh, transaction or transmission that is sent. I mean, e- even with a, a program to do that, you would never pick it up in a way that was meaningful or useful. Mm. But, you know, the, the stuff that's out there, you know, the for your eyes only or, you know, highly secure and you've got to have certain clearance to get it. Mm. Um, as Chris was saying, it comes down to human error. And you can have all the the technical facilities and products and programs um, and security settings known to man. But if someone, you know, prints it out and leaves it in their car and the car gets stolen or doesn't shred it and disposes of it um, inappropriately or shares a conversation off the cuff with someone without thinking, well, all those processes are just thrown out the door because they're not going to protect the data and the content. But all data these days, of course, is in electronic form, isn't it? I mean, to go back to my old-fashioned example of the the executive writing things on pieces of paper, this doesn't happen anymore. No one writes things on pieces of paper. People write things on their computers, which they hope to be secure. So therefore, potentially, everything's available. It is, other than if you work in a hospital, because it still comes in via a fax machine. So you do have to write it and you do have to receive it and then print it and read it. Um, But yes, I take your point that, you know, 99% of the stuff we do um, every single day is done electronically. It's done on a device. So we need to be mindful. And I think, you know, it starts at the lowest level, it goes through the highest level, that we need to have an understanding of how technology works, not not to a super high degree, but the amount of people who believe that, oh, I've got a private, I've got a private Facebook account, no one can see what I do. Like they have no concept of the reality of that statement, let alone when you get into that higher level. And I can remember being undercover online <coughs> at one point and um, and this is quite a funny story because I was being groomed, if you like, by a serving police officer. Mm-hmm. And he was, ch- I was in my office up in the Ivory Tower and he was at a local police station. Um, when he got caught out, um, because, you know, obviously I reported what was going on, his excuse was he was trying to um, gather intelligence from me and he thought I would be a suitable source, which was just a load of rubbish. But that is how it works. And, you know, they don't think um, they're, they're, you know, sh- they think they're viewing it in one perspective and they're driven for one end without thinking about, well, hang on a minute, is this person real? Am I actually chatting to someone that is going to be my source? Because allegedly, you know, I appeared to be a drug-taking individual, mm. um, but I wasn't. I was an undercover police officer and uh, he just happened to uh, cross my path. All right. Uh, we're talking about spying tonight. Uh, Susan McLean has been speaking with us, Australian cyber safety expert, principal of cyber safety solutions, a former member of the Victorian Police for 27 years, and Chris Costa uh, from the from Washington joining our conversation as well, executive director of the International Spy Museum, amongst many other uh, things. Joining us also from London, Richard Kerbash. Richard's a, uh, an investigative journalist and filmmaker and author of The Secret History of the Five Eyes. Richard, uh, to you, the the Five Eyes, this is an alliance, isn't it, between, well, we're part of the alliance, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, uh, so, so the, this alliance was created uh, in 1956, mm. and it was initially created to combat uh, Russian threats during the Cold War. And then it kind of repurposed uh, its uh, operations in the wake of 9-11, and now it's operating, you know, in a much much better way. It's it, it's made up of 
probably around 14 key intelligence agencies, including household names that you'd be familiar with from the CIA, FBI, MI5, MI6, ASIO in Australia and ASIS. And they, they work towards a common purpose and goal. And there are, you know, written and unwritten rules between them. Some are um, adhered to, others are ignored. Mm -hmm. They operate quite well in most cases. Sometimes there's sort of um, failures and uh, issues that go on between them that um, that create a favor of conflict. I detail all of that uh, in the history, but I think it's important to go back to the point about how Australia got into the Five Eyes, because, of course, during... Uh, the Second World War, Australia made some great contributions uh, on signals intelligence, but it hadn't yet been brought into the circle of trust. But it was on the outside of the circle of trust, but still getting information from the US and UK and getting a great deal of assistance and providing assistance. And then in the late 1940s, Australia was thrown out of the circle of trust after the Kremlin uh, compromised the uh, Australian government and particularly uh, yeah, namely through the Department of External Affairs, which I believe now is called the Department of Foreign Affairs. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, uh, the Truman administration in the US severed intelligence and military ties with Australia. And so in order to bring Australia back into the fold, the British Prime Minister of the day, Clement Attlee, uh, appealed to the Truman administration and said, well, what if we can elevate Australia's intelligence gathering and intelligence capability to fit that of ours? So, so stand, you know, bring their standards up. And so with that reassurance and with that assurance, uh, Britain helped Australia create an intelligence agency in 1949, which is called ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. And within a couple of years, ASIO made some enormous gains and uh, was able to recruit the chief KGB officer uh, in Canberra, a guy called Vladimir Petrov, who started providing exactly a famous, a famous affair here, yes. the Petrov, the Petrov exactly. affair. That's right. This was well, a feather in the cap, wasn't it, of the Australian security services? Totally, totally. And I think that's, and that, as a result of that, that changed the perception that uh, Western agencies had of Australia hmm. and and then brought it into the circle of trust. So then by the time 1956 came around, when it was all being set up, the Five Eyes, Australia was certainly a key player. So even though it's a junior partner in its, in its capabilities and its resources, because technically everyone's a junior partner in contrast to the US because of the resources that the US has, but Australia does play a key role hmm. uh, in that. Yeah. Okay. How the, the, under the Five Eyes Agreement, of course, uh, n not everyone has to share everything. <laughs> how much do you think is actually shared? I mean, how much of how much, given okay. that the US would have a gr far greater capacity to collect intelligence than than Australia was, how much do you think Australia does share with with Australia about things, or for that matter, for, or for that matter, lowly New Zealand? <laughs> how much would they share yeah, with? I, I, well, I think you sort of need to split that question in half because you've got the human intelligence sharing and you've got the signals intelligence sharing. So if you look at an organization like, say, the ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, mm -hmm. and the NSA, the National Security Agency in the US, and GCHQ in the UK, their intelligence sharing is quite seamless. It's almost done through a system. So there's there's sharing versus exchanges that are done between the human intelligence agencies. That is 
that is shared on a more sort of ad hoc basis. Sometimes they do withhold and they can withhold information from one another because the agreement that was created among the five eyes was largely created. In fact, it was predominantly created to uh, improve sharing and technical skill sharing and the sharing of um, employees and and uh, ideas and resources within the signals intelligence sphere. It wasn't uh, created to um, to deal with human intelligence. In fact, there is nothing in the contract between them that says anything about human intelligence. So, yes, there is information that is withheld, and we know that's happened uh, in history, both throughout the Cold War and even. Uh, more recently. And also there's a categorization within that contract, which is called, referred to as no foreign, N-O-F-R-O, sorry, N-O-F-O-R-N, which means, which is an acronym for not releasable to foreign nationals. So that means that (laughs) any agency within, any agency within the five eyes can withhold information from partner agencies and member agencies within the five eyes. And, and sometimes they do that because you know they feel that it's important to do it. Sometimes they do it because it's part of a cover-up. And we know that that's actually taken place. There's a, there's a great uh, recent example where the Canadian uh, intelligence service uh, was running an operation where they were, if, where they were pretty much running uh, Western jihadists into Syria at the same time that the British were trying to stop them from going in. And that compromised British national security. And that became a huge story out here. Uh, I don't need to go into it now, but it's something that plays out in the book that I've revealed as well. Mm. Interesting. All right, Richard Kobash is uh, with us, one of our experts tonight. Richard uh, uh, has written a book on the uh, on the Five Eyes, the intelligence organisation made up of the US, Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Chris, just back to you. How much do people and Richard join this conversation too? You, sometimes we get this idea that, 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 you know, there's not much that they don't know. And then others point to say, well, look, on a relatively simple matter, like where is Osama bin Laden, the U.S. didn't seem to know for some years. Or, or do you think that's not the case? Chris? So, yeah, I mean... I mean that would seem to be a relatively about... simple thing to work out, wouldn't it? Well, it seems like it might be simple, right? But we had a individual that wanted to be hidden. So he employed tradecraft. He employed cutouts. He employed safe sites. He cut off his communications to the external world. So it would seem easy. Why can't we find one individual? But as demonstrated, it took it took a significant amount of time. Now, in the end, we're going to find people we want to find, we being the intelligence community. Hmm. It's just going to take time. It's painstaking. It's not only analysts, it's operators on the ground. It's liaisons, in other words, working with the Five Eyes. In particular, the cooperation uh, between the Five Eyes for counterterrorism was quite extraordinary. But at the same time, an individual that wants to hide uh, can do so. It is difficult to find that needle in the proverbial. And the truth way. appears to be that he wasn't found at all. He was given up by somebody who walked into the United States and said, I know where he is. Uh, I think uh, that seems yeah. to be the truth of it, doesn't it? 
Well, I, I might dispute that. I would say it was getting access to uh, to some of uh, his courier network. And I would say, and we show this at the International Spy Museum with a red teaming exercise, the bottom line, this is an analytical problem. And in the end, it was a decision that the president of the United States, President Obama, had to make whether we execute off that information that was developed or not, that intelligence. And in the end, it, it turned out to be a 50-50 proposition, but it was an analytical judgment based on getting access to a courier network. So it wasn't one piece of intelligence. It was the puzzle being put together. Mm. Susan, is it... Well, so yeah, add, go, go, go on, Richard. Yeah. This is great point here regarding... Uh, sort of these kind of investigations. I mean, it, you know, in some cases, it could be delays because of, I don't know, general incompetence or an inability to access information. In other cases, it's required, that time is required because you have to vet the information that you're getting, you're receiving, and you have to corroborate it. It's, it's, it takes longer because you're, uh, you're uh, trying to protect your sources. So you have your the source protection is is a center is a centerpiece of uh, work for human intelligence agencies because dead sources are not exactly a great recruitment tool. And then when it comes to recruitment, uh, you you certainly need to do the vetting as well. I mean, as we've seen, there's been numerous examples where uh, both in Britain or in the U.S., for example, the recruited people who've turned out to be sort of double agents. We know there was a a case in 2009 relating to someone who had infiltrated al-Qaeda, who was recruited by the CIA and uh, during a mission to come and sort of be debriefed by the CIA in Afghanistan, he blew himself up and killed eight CIA officers. And the other thing relating to recruitment as well, and the reason why it's so important not to put mission ahead of vetting is because the, our adversaries are getting much better at tracking down uh, our informants. So the Chinese, so going back to the issue about sort of Chinese surveillance, they've become much more adept at tracking down uh, Western sources. And there is a, a case that was you know, quite widely reported, and I do go into it in my book, where there's probably around 20 people or so, uh, CIA sources, who just disappeared. Mm. And the uh, result there was that uh, there were either some of them were locked up and others were killed. Mm. Susan, is it possible to run, Kim, you've done work on international drug uh, syndicates, is it possible to run communications in, in organisations that in a sense are not traceable or crackable? Uh, I mean, apart from the, the, the written note on a piece of paper that's transferred by hand, because we often hear that, you know, there are encrypted methods of conversation, for example, uh, people use uh, applications like WhatsApp or Signal in the, you know, in the in the business world. Uh, what what safety does encryption provide anyway? I think encryption can provide um, safety in that you know if basic Harry the hacker gets involved, probably not going to be able to unencrypt what has been sent nor see. Right. Um, if you talk about it like on WhatsApp, Meta is very clear about the fact that they don't get to see what is being shared um, across the WhatsApp network, for example. Um, is there someone out there that can unencrypt it and read it? You know, how long is a piece of string? Right. I would suggest that what do you, there what would do you be. Think? What do you think? Yeah. I, I, do, I think anything is possible. 
Um, is it probable? Don't know, but certainly I would suggest it's possible. And then you look at um, some high-level criminals too, and yes, they have a lot of money behind them and they can employ X, Y, and Z, but often they're not the sharpest tool in the shed. So <laughs> they do also bring themselves unstuck with their use of um, communication technology and the internet. Hmm. I, I, sometimes you get led to believe that there are vast armies of people in, in Russia and China sponsored by the state, paid for by the state, and they go to work every day and do nothing but try and uh, hack into foreign governments' infrastructure or defence and security apparatus. I mean, is that is that really the truth? I mean, China apparently tried to, well, successfully hacked into the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. Why on earth would they want to do that? Nuisance value to, you know, create, um, you know, a mess right. that someone has to clean up and also to prove they can. You know, it is a way of exerting, um, hello, this is us, here we are. Um, if we can get in here, where else can we get into? And I think, you know, the Australian government at the moment um, is a little bit panicked in that for some bizarre reason they had purchased all those surveillance cameras to put on government buildings inside government agencies and all of a sudden realised the data was going back to China. You know, that is just gobsmackingly ignorant that there is a very big difference between purchasing a product that is made in China mm. but one that is gathering data and therefore the data can be being shared with the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that, um, you know, the government ha here has been a little bit slow to realise that that, you know, should be of a huge concern because some of these cameras were actually inside um, quite high-level government departments. They weren't just on the outside of the war memorial. I don't really know what data of interest that is for China in all honesty, but there'd certainly be content that is being recorded and shared that can be used. Mm. Yes. What about social media platforms like TikTok? I mean, when I hear this, I think, really, how many armies of people or what sort of applications are used to 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 search through or sift through all the vast amount of information on, on TikTok? Is any TikTok user sending their information to China? Every TikTok user is sending their information to China. Um, it's what information they're sharing. And, and I have people say to me, oh, who cares? You know, I don't really care that the Chinese government knows that, you know, I do this, I do that, I like this, you know, I follow this. But it then allows China to form a picture. And, you know, you, like we said before, you put all the bits of the jigsaw puzzle together. So they've got location data, they've got demographic data, they've got age um, and sex data, they've got interests. I mean, and then it goes up from there. And despite what um, representatives of ByteDance will tell you that, oh, no, you know, we don't do this, mm. they do. Because if you are a Chinese company, um, you are beholden to the Communist Party. You can't go, no, sorry, not sharing that with you. It doesn't work that way. Mm. Richard, we've got glorified images of spies from the Cold War era. Uh, and in some ways, you know, people figures like the James Bond um, series is, is based on those kinds of characters. The James Bond thing, of course. What is the real situation? What's a modern spy look like? Well, if you're talking about spies, as in, well, you, I'm guessing you're sort of talking about sort of intelligence officials mm. and agent handlers. Um, I think there's a great push for more diversity within the intelligence agencies, certainly across the five eyes, because if you need to 
be able to get into those communities, you need to have a sort of much better understanding of them. And that's where diversity kicks in. But also, I think, you know, all in all, intelligence agencies are absolutely required. We do need them for, uh, in the interest of national security, in the interest of protecting us. And of course, there are people who are sceptical about how well they perform and how well they are protecting us. Um, but but they're absolutely required. And what's quite reassuring is that over time, and mainly as a result of exposés and revelations of bad practices, the oversight committees that have been introduced and the oversight missions uh, that have been introduced have made them much more accountable. And I think over time they will become much more accountable because the general public now is becoming much more aware and awake to what intelligence agencies do, particularly in the wake of the Snowden revelations when people started you know, believing that anything is hackable and right. the general public believes that. And as was Susan was saying, that is that's generally true. I don't think any intelligence agencies or intelligence officials are sitting out there with their limited resources uh, going, hey, how can we hack into uh, your average person's mobile phone or computer mm. data? I, I don't think Correct. that is. So their mission is still sort of very much on point to track down the threats, identify potential recruitment targets, go from there. But what's also at play here is the the behavior of intelligence agencies uh, when it is politicized and we know that that's happened over the years so particularly in the wake in the lead up to the invasion of iraq oh. we know that the mission was very much politicized because the political masters of the day george bush and tony blair wanted the intelligence to fit the political ambition and not the other way around and so as a result the intelligence that had been that was being used by MI6 and the CIA, some of which had predominantly come through the DIA, which is the intelligence arm of the Pentagon, was uh, was inaccurate. And what's extraordinary about that is that a lot of people attack the CIA as a whole as a result of this. And I think that's that's kind of the wrong way to go about it. I've interviewed many officials at the CIA who spoke up against that intelligence and who opposed it, and they were just locked out and they were locked out of the sort of the conversation room. So when you create an echo chamber in any situation that plays to the sort of tune of the political master, then you're very much sort of likely to be ending up in a bad position, which is what we saw mm. uh, in the... Uh, in Presum the Presumably, uh, Vladimir Putin uses telephones. Well, he must. Uh, he must also use uh, mobile telephones, uh, which means that we you could listen to it. Uh, Susan... Australia, a while back, listened into the private mobile telephone conversations of of Indonesian leaders. Uh, it was revealed. They've never admitted to this, but they <laughs> did. They did. Uh, theoretically, it's quite possible to listen to what Vladimir Putin is saying on the telephone, isn't it? Theoretically, it is. Um, do, you, do you think they are listening to that? I think they'd like to be. Um, I would be pretty sure that you know, out of everyone, either the UK or the USA would have better capabilities hmm. um, to do that. And I think that, you know, it is about trying to, you know, get ahead of the technology that he might be using to try to keep his um, communications secure. But there's certainly going to be a possibility of that. And when you're relying on other people, the people around him, um, and all of that, and look at how many, you know, close advisors have suddenly disappeared. 
Um, it may be the case that, you know, someone decides to um, jump ship and feed some information about how to do this or what's being said. Mm. Um, and then that's about the cultivating the source and making sure that you protect that. What do you think, Chris? Do you reckon that anybody's listening to Vladimir Putin's telephone? Well, I like Susan's answer. They want to. Whether they are doing that or not would be pure speculation on my part, because that would, as it were, be uh, highly sensitive. I, I want to underscore the point, though, that the environment is extremely complex. And what does a spy look like? Whatever the mission entails, you can wear a tuxedo or you can wear rough clothes, as I did in combat zones across uh, the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan. But the bottom line is uh, the communities are challenged to answer critical questions and the complexities of that environment have changed dramatically uh, since the end of the Cold War. Mm. One of the modern mysteries is who blew up the Nord Stream gas pipeline from Russia into Europe. Now, it seems that the reason the West isn't highly agitated about this is because they know who blew it up. And that is, it was the United States who blew it up because Joe Biden in particular and others in the US have never liked the idea of the Nord Stream pipeline anyway. But it's it's not conceivable that they don't know who blew it up. Uh, is it, Chris? Well, I think um, it's been reported all week long that... Um, the US blew it up. You, no, no, that, uh, that's been one story. But I think uh, the prevailing view as of this morning is the Ukrainian partisans are behind the Nord Stream bom- bombings, which underscores another problem, right, with partisans or indigenous proxies, it's control. So the question is, you know, why would they do that? Uh, Because they want to prevent uh, the oil from getting to the Germans. But the Germans, frankly, have weaned themselves off of Russian oil, or so that's my understanding. The United States, I think it's very unlikely they would execute a covert action and try to disrupt uh, the oil. But the Ukrainians doing it and aggravating uh, the United States, that's quite possible. Ukrainians could not have done it without the U.S. agreeing to that, surely. They wouldn't have the capacity, expertise or opportunity to do it. I that's purely speculation as well. The mm. Ukrainians have their intelligence services might be surreptitiously, and again, this is speculation, but supporting Ukrainian partisans. Mm. And Ukraine has an excellent intelligence service. You're seeing the results of that day in and day out. So mm. the story is not over. And uh um I think though the prevailing view is uh that it's pro-Ukrainian saboteurs. Mm. Who do you think blew it up, Richard? I, listen, I've seen the reporting. I, I don't have an insight into this, and I'm not going to sort of speculate about it, but I've seen the reporting on sort of both sides. But I think just going back to the question about how spies have changed, and I would just to pick up on something that Chris mentioned earlier about the sort of the opportunities that exist now in the domain uh, in post Ukraine, post-Ukraine war because the intelligence agencies within the Five Eyes are desperately trying to recruit defectors. And that, of course, was something that happened through the Cold War. Mm. And successfully, through the Cold War, there were defectors who volunteered their services, uh, you know, Russian defectors volunteered their services to uh, intelligence agencies in the West and really furthered their understanding of what was happening inside the Kremlin. And I think that would be the key prize 
for any intelligence agency. And I know for a fact that they are pursuing that. I've had conversations with people within the CIA and FBI and other agencies uh, about this. And that. so when, when you talk about is Putin's phone call being uh, intercepted, uh, you know, that, that's kind of speculative. Is it? Is it not? The point is that there's no way in the world that Putin, who is a former KGB officer himself, is going to be discussing sensitive matters on a phone. So it doesn't matter if he can get access to it. Yeah. What matters is if he can get inside the room. And getting inside the room is getting someone inside the room. And that's where recruitment of human sources is so it's crucial. So important. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. where agencies mm-hmm. are doing. That's where spies are really doing the great work, hopefully. Yeah. Chris, I can't leave you, uh, I can't finish this conversation because t- it's been fascinating, but time is running out on us. I want to know what's in the International Spy Museum. I mean, are you able to tell us its location? <laughs> I am. I, that is not a secret. It is in Lafont <laughs> <So> Plaza <laughs> in Washington, okay. D.C. Excellent. And we love when our Australian friends roll into the museum, and they do quite often. Uh, yeah, come visit one, us. In I'll DC. check what, it out. <laughs> one, one of our regular co- listeners here wants to know whether you've got an example of the cone of silence on display in the museum. <laughs> uh, the kind of what? I'm sorry. The cone of silence. <laughs> Have you got an example? <laughs> You, well, we you, you remember Maxwell Smart who had, yes, uh, had no, a, no, no. a need to go so, into the cone of silence. That's right. We don't have a cone of silence, but we do have Max's uh, shoe phones or shoe phones that are like <laughs> Max's from uh, from that particular show. We have poison tip umbrellas. You asked about that mm-hmm. when you opened this, or, or you talked about poison tip umbrellas. We have. All of that, the artifacts that underscore the shadow world of espionage. We we uh, love uh, to educate the public on why and how of espionage. Yeah. So please come visit the museum. Okay. I'm sure you've got a number of fountain pens that uh, do things other than uh, write. Do you? I might even have one at home. So, yes, we uh, we, we do indeed. Um, uh, we have assassination tools, which you're alluding to. We have lipstick that can be also turned into uh, a lethal weapon. So these have all been used by intelligence services in the past, and it's so universal, in particular Russian intelligence services, right? Um, so we have all of those artifacts that underscore what we've been talking about today, Mm. uh, the tools of espionage throughout history. Fascinating. All right, Susan, you and I and um, everybody else is um, making a beeline for this next time we're in the United States. Of course. And I was recently in D.C. I didn't even know it existed. So next time. Of course you didn't know it existed, um, Susan. Of course you didn't. No, because it's it's a secret. It's a secret. That's right. That's right. It's a secret. I'm talking to my shoe phone. (laughs) There you go. Time has beaten us, but it's been fascinating speaking to all of you. And I do thank you for your time. Susan McLean is Australia's, one of Australia's foremost experts in the era in the area of cyber safety. Susan, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, also, Richard Kerbush has been with us, of course, the author of The F- Secret History of the Five Eyes. Uh, Richard, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, Chris Costa, of course, uh, from, uh, well, formerly Special Assistant to the US President and the Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council. And uh, custodian of the, uh, of, the, of the Spy Museum in Washington. Make sure you have a look at it. Chris, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Been a great uh, privilege and a pleasure to talk to all three of you. What a fascinating conversation. 
You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.